Hello, my friends. Welcome to Word Made Digital. I'm your host, Joanne LaFleur. This is season seven, episode nine. On the podcast today, we have John Mark Comer. And, uh, you know, he's kind of one of those men who needs no introduction, I suppose, especially because he's been on the podcast before. And we're going to catch up with where he's at now. But also, you know, if you're a millennial or even a Gen Z, you probably know this guy. You've read his books, uh, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, or you've been tracking with his uh, work and ministry at Bridgetown Church. But he's no longer at Bridgetown. Uh, he's doing some new things, right? Right now he's on sabbatical and he's going to be launching something called Practicing the Way. So we're going to talk to him about that whole transition. Thank you so much to the sponsors of the podcast who are making this possible. Um, thank you to The Church Co. This is a website building company. It's been really cool over the last little bit to see more and more of you pick up on these websites. I've been seeing you posting and letting me know that you are uh, grabbing websites off The Church Co. So more about them later. And also, of course, Compassion Canada, an amazing partner and organization I get to work with, a real privilege to advocate for uh, children and their families all around the world who are living in extreme poverty. And um, it's an amazing thing too, to see how we as a community on Where Made Digital are doing things to make a difference in this area. So, okay, John Mark Comer today on the podcast, we're talking about his new book or his most recent book, Live No Lies. We're talking about practicing the way, which is this whole thing about how uh, he's building tools and ways to integrate spiritual formation into churches and to groups of Christians. This is sort of the new endeavor in the next season of his life now that he's stepped down from Bridgetown. So we're going to be talking about that today with John Mark. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome to the Word Made Digital Podcast with Joanna LaFleur. You're listening to Season 7. Word Made Digital brings you interviews with Christian creatives and communicators to inspire, challenge, and equip you in your own work. The church has the best news in the world, so we want to help you be the best communicators in the world. Here we go. Mark Comer, welcome back to Word Made Digital. I'm really pumped to have you. Thanks so much for joining us again. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Uh, can you uh, tell us a little bit about your world? Since we last spoke, uh, your world has changed. Just in the last week or two, um, um, what is your new reality? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, I assume you're referring to that I just, uh, as we record this, I think three days ago, stepped down after 18 years um, of my, from my role as the pastor for preaching and vision at the church that we planted 18 years ago with a team of great people in order to take a break, um, go on sabbatical, and then come back and start a new nonprofit called Practicing the Way, where I aim to kind of create a very simple and beautiful way to integrate discipleship and spiritual formation into churches and small groups. So I want to give myself more fully to the work of teaching and of writing, and in particular, kind of the world of spiritual formation and discipleship. So um, all good. There's no drama behind the scenes other than just normal church drama, but beautiful kind mm -hmm. of handoff at the church to one of my dear friends, Tyler Staten from Brooklyn, New York, who's just going to, I think, pastor our church better than I ever did, and a uh, beautiful relationship with our, our leaders. So it was a very good ending, but also very sad. I'm, in all honesty, just grieving this week, feeling very 
sad, but I think yeah, the healthy sure. kind of sadness, you know, yeah. all transitions, even the good ones that we choose and want involve grief and loss. And so the beginning of every transition is kind of attending to that grief, you know, so in that now, but it's a, it's a good grief mixed with a lot of gratitude. Yeah. I, I love that. I mean, there's so many leaders of course, who don't leave well. So, I mean, I, how have you left well, maybe as a f way of starting into the conversation with you? What are, I mean, some of that maybe can't be known until hindsight, but, um, you know, what are some yeah. things you've tried to do in the last couple of months in that transition? Um, well, I, I'm not going to evaluate, I'm not going to evaluate my leaving, whether it was good or not. Uh, somebody else would have to do that, <laughs> but, but, and I'm sure they have and will. But um, it does feel like a really beautiful transition to me. And I do think it went fairly well and um, for something that's pretty hard to do, you know, especially when you're the founding pastor of a church, if you want to use that language. I think it was a weird one because, you know, when you start a church and then you um, at some point hand off that leadership position, it's like if you get it right, this church's best years or even decades could still be ahead of it and it could go mm -hmm. on for decades to possibly even outlive you and thrive yeah. in your absence which is the dream if you get it wrong it's like everything that you have worked for and you know literally poured your blood sweat and tears into uh could just be at least deeply damaged if not full-on sabotaged yeah. by by it and, uh, you know, I think passing off a church calls up. Uh, so two gifts were, there are two great gifts. So it's a really hard thing to do because it, the stakes are really high and you have no experience. I have no experience. I've never handed off a church. So it's like trying to get an A++ on something you've never done before. There's no like way to practice it, you know, that, I'm, that I can, other than I think death to self in ordinary discipleship mm -hmm. in life is the best practice you could possibly think of for passing off a church at some point, which is just a, a larger example of, of death to self at some level and of trusting in God for your future. But I was gracious enough, I was, I was blessed enough to have um, access to Pete Scazzaro, who, if you're familiar with his work with Emotionally Healthy Spirituality mm -hmm. and The Emotionally Healthy Leader, he's just such an extraordinary gift. And he's passed off a church that he planted after even longer to a phenomenal young leader, Rich Viotis, who's a friend of mine, and they've just done really, really well. One of my favorite really, really well. Instagram follows. Yes. Yeah, Rich has got and great content there, yeah. Yeah, he's wicked smart. So uh, Pete was gracious enough to spend some time kind of mentoring me through this process and had actually mm -hmm. spent the last two years mentoring Tyler, who's my replacement. Wow. So he was really kind of like a father to us through that process and uh, only did a couple of calls with him, long calls, but they were extraordinarily helpful. And, you know, in the first call, when I was still like discerning whether or not it was time to step down with our elders, he's like, this will be, he encouraged me to do it. And he said, this will be the hardest thing you ever do. It will call up every ounce of spiritual maturity and emotional health you have. It will expose all of your ego, your pride, your fear, your narcissism, your wrong motivations. It will be death to self. It will be Philippians 2. It will be emptying yourself, giving up power, losing control, feeling the fear of it, taking the downward path. <laughs> and it will be the biggest death you've ever been through. Huh. You should do it. 
And I was like, oh, oh wow. <laughs> and uh, he was 110% right. That's the best mm -hmm. description I could think of. But it was such a gift to have his kind of mentorship. And, you know, and then he turned us on to um, a consultant that we actually hired that he used that kind of walked us through this 40, 40 step process. And through it, you know, I, I realized it was honestly really hard, really beautiful, but really hard to do. And I realized why so many people end poorly, even when there's no like, you know, scandal, but they just yeah. don't end. I, it's really hard. I no longer have judgment for the people that just like announce on a Sunday, God's moving us on and disappear. <laughs> you know, I don't think that's, that's obviously not right, but I don't have judgment. I understand it's hard, you know, and, um, especially for people that have deep wounding, whether it's from that church experience, there's a lot of talk right now. Maybe I shouldn't say this on the internet, but there's a ton of talk with the rise and fall of Mars Hill and other, you know, examples of how many churches have been hurt by their pastor. Right. And that's totally true and tragic. And uh, it is like an epidemic kind of in the Western church. But because of the larger cultural kind of constructs that we're living in right now, it's not socially acceptable what is just as much of a problem, if not arguably even more of a problem. And that is how many pastors have been hurt by their churches. Mm. And for all sorts of reasons, that's not okay to talk about but it's a massive problem. If you look at the number of pastors that are leaving the ministry right now, it's epidemic. And it's similar to American politics, and hopefully it's better up on your side of the border, but you start to create this monster, like with politics right now, the way politics has, what politics has become in America, the kind of person that would want to be a president or a senator is is likely not the kind of person that you would want to be a president or a yeah, senator or a congressman. That's not to say they're all bad at, at all. I'm not trying to slander anybody, but um, it's that you start to create this beast that you're like, what kind of person would be attracted to this? And I think similar to the church, if we're not, if the church has a role, you know, you get the, you know, um, <laughs> what's that saying? You get the leaders that you deserve. Mm, and, yeah. uh, and so that's, that's an overstatement. It's not true as a metaphysic, but there's a little bit of wisdom in that. So all that to say, I think we, as the church, uh, and now as somebody who's in a church under the authority of the elders, um, who I'm not, not one of now, like we, we have a responsibility to form a community and to be the kind of people whom a humble, loving Hebrews 13 kind of leader would flourish in, that we would be a joy to them by coming under their loving Christian authority. So, um, yeah, a, a lot of learning. I'm talking too much about this, not the point of this podcast, but a lot of, I've learned so much about myself. I've learned so much about my shadow, so much about my fear, so much about my ego, so much about uh, my motivation. And I'm just incredibly grateful to God for his mercy toward me and toward our church. Our church, I think, is doing, they have been incredible. Our church has just... I feel both blessed and loved and supported and released and sent. And I feel that they have just welcomed uh, Tyler, who's my replacement, in with just open arms. And uh, yeah, it's, it was, it's been a very beautiful wow. season. Well, I mean, you're saying it's not the point of the podcast, but it kind of is because what you're talking about, the undertones of this is it ripples into the whole culture of Christianity and how we do discipleship and and what are the yeah. dangers on every side down this path we walk. Uh, you know, we've gone in the last year and a half through such, an, such a huge change as a church. 
you know, maybe like 10 plus years of change happening in one year <laughs> or really maybe in a few yes. weeks, like all of a sudden all these churches had to like go online and figure all this stuff out for the first time. Mm-hmm. Some that may never have otherwise ever done so, or certainly wouldn't have done it, you know, anytime in the next 10 years. <laughs> um, and so in that we're then grappling with the reality of, we all know how many Christian leaders have left ministry, pastoral work, um, hurt, jaded, leaving their faith in many cases. And then the same thing on the congregational side, people leaving communities, hurt, jaded, yeah. not coming back. So um, it's all around the work you're doing now um, into the future, the writing you've just done. <laughs> you know, what What does the future of the church look like in your mind? I mean, are we not going to have any professional Christians anymore. We're all going to be gathered in house churches or on Zoom calls or what are some of the things you're um, in the positive side? Like what are some things you're seeing that you're excited about and where church is going as we've gone through such a drastic change? Yeah. Well, I mean, the first major disclaimer is that I don't know the future. I am, I'm very human. I'm very in... <laughs> In the moment, not like yeah. in the sense of the virtue of in the moment. Like I am actually in a body in time and space. I don't know the future. And I think with um, globalization, with the digital internet age, I think we are entering an increasingly complex world in which it becomes incredibly hard to um, chart the future. You know, planning is a function of predictability. So we plan, that's one of the things that was like brand new to a lot of us in 2020 was in our inability to make plans, particularly as church leaders, because the future was so unstable. You, unstable. you didn't know, like, could we, be, could we gather then? Would we, you know, would there still be a pandemic going on? Would we be out? Would, you know, our city still be on fire or whatever? And so it was bizarre. Something as simple as planning a summer vacation was almost impossible. That's very new to us in the West. If you live in Afghanistan or Syria or the Congo or Sudan, that's commonplace to you. And if yeah, you've ever visited right. places like that, you realize that planning is like a non-existent thing. You know what I mean? It's very much like people living one day at a time by necessity. So um, planning is a function of predictability and the world is becoming increasingly difficult, if not impossible to predict. And so, which is why planning even as a leader is really hard to do. So let me give you just a, yeah, like a bit of a generic. Threw their, everybody threw their five-year strategic plan out the window in 2020. <laughs> yes, all that stuff. And yeah. you know, you're right. I think crises in general, whether it's a war or a global pandemic or whatever, they tend to intensify and accelerate whatever cultural trends are already in the air. Mm. So I don't see any major left or right shift. I think that COVID and 2020 and now 21 has just accelerated and intensified what already was happening in the wider culture and even in the church. And so, um, you know, at a, at a meta level, I think one of the things that's been happening in our two countries, likely your country has been ahead of us on this curve, is just the burning up of, you know, cultural Christianity and uh, the collapse of people that aren't in the center of discipleship to Jesus to the ideologies of both the left and the right. And again, the polarization thing is a uniquely American phenomenon, but because America has such a loud microphone, uh, if something bad happens in America, it tends to have a ripple effect in yeah. other, at least English-speaking nations, you know? 
So um, that, colla- that kind of burning up of cultural Christianity, which in America, America is very much a United States of America, so it depends a lot where you are. If you're in a Portland, it burned up a long time ago if it was ever on fire here. And if you're in Dallas, Texas, you know, then, you know, you're experiencing a very different, there's still much more presence of cultural Christianity. And it is burning up, but at a very different rate. So it depends where you are in America. I would imagine Canada is maybe a little bit like that. If you're in, what's the Bible Belt of Canada? Like Alberta, Edmonton, something like that. There's like some places in Saskatchewan that has, in Manitoba, have a lot of Mennonites. Uh, yeah. Oh, I love me some Mennonites. Yep. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, there's a few pockets for sure. I'm in the yes. Toronto, the largest city in the country. Yes. Very secular. Yeah. Um, secular, pluralistic. Yeah. Just did some street interviews for TV, um, for a TV show as a side tangent and had to ask people on the streets, like, what do you want for Christmas? And realizing like, we can barely ask anyone because so many people on the streets don't celebrate Christmas. <laughs> like it's so many wow. people from so many other places. I'm like, I got to yes. find somebody who celebrates Christmas to even ask them this stupid question. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah. Like in Portland, pride is a way, way bigger deal than Christmas is. Huh. So Christmas is kind yeah. of like a mildly depressing couple of weeks in the city, mostly where people just are depressed about the lack of family that they have because the mm-hmm. secular progressive life script does not have multi-generational families as a value. And Pride is like a three-month-long now, like, citywide extravaganza everywhere you go. Mm. So it's really interesting that, you know, kind of cultural shift that we are living through. So I just think that's another sign. Cultural Christianity, of which Christmas would be one good example, um, is, is burning up. And this is where I would maybe break, and I would love to hear your thoughts. I would break from a lot of the kind of uh, millennial orthodoxy. I don't think the future is better digital strategies. I definitely don't think it's church over Zoom. I think the future is ancient. I think it's a return to kind of whatever you want to call apostolic Christianity, those first couple of centuries of the church. It's a return to some form of like a neo-monasticism. It's deep community around tables and meals. It's uh, courageous kind of fidelity to orthodoxy, people that are willing to literally die rather than recant the truth of the gospel and the faith. It's deep holiness in sexuality and in marriage. It's standing up against injustice, but not the um, culturally popular standing up against injustice, but the culturally unpopular standing up against injustice. Like the early church was deeply committed to um, justice, but not in the in vogue kind of way. Like they were, they were radically against infanticide, which was like the abortion of the day. It was completely socially acceptable and even celebrated at some level by Greco-Roman culture. So I think the future is ancient, and I think what will emerge, I don't know the future, and the big wild card really is globalization, because so many of the um, minorities and immigrants who are moving to our nation, who are fast becoming not minorities anymore, are Christians. And, uh, or at least social conservatives. You think about the Chinese, this is a materialist culture that's still socially conservative. So like, I think it's, the future is very open. I don't know what's going to happen, you know? And I put great hope on a lot of these people coming in to backfill the, you know, I don't have a great interest in like preserving American culture 
though there are some pieces of it that I love just because I grew up in it. But man, there's a lot of it that is just anti-God, anti-community, mm -hmm. hyper-individualistic, postmodern in its ethics, anti-authoritarian. I don't have like some massive interest in like preserving that, you know? <laughs> so um, my commitment is to a kingdom without borders, to the kingdom of God. And uh, I'm grateful that I was born in America, but um, my hope is somewhere else. This episode is brought to you by The Church Co. If you don't know The Church Co yet, The Church Co is a website building company that you've got to check out because they're actually building people websites for free. They don't just build you a website, they in fact host and support your website. So you sign up and you choose a plan and then they have a team of web designers who are gonna build you a website at no additional charge beyond your monthly payments of being part of Their sites look good, I think maybe even better than sites that cost thousands of dollars. And they have these really unique features that a lot of church websites, they, they need. So if you're talking about church online or CHMS integrations, digital prayer, small groups and events and sermons, live stream, all that kind of stuff. The best part though, is I think the price. This is why I love them and have been talking about them for years. They do all this for just $29. talk about this idea living in X we're going to get to we're we're talking about your book live no we're talking about your book without talking about your book yet live no lies yes no that's um, great I'm just you have me I'm happy to talk about whatever yeah we're gonna we're, we're circling around this conversation but um something I I are you familiar with this idea I you are so well read Constantine the what they call the great compromise of Christianity when Constantine you know, made, uh, you know, when it became official that Christianity was right. the, like, um, um, can you maybe if you, if you, whatever you know of it, if you want to speak to what that was, and then you have any reflection on sort of the great empire of today and what's happened, the compromise, uh, we've made. Yeah. I mean, I think we're living in a similar time. So if basic, this is a, a 30,000 foot flyover yeah. of church history is that you know for the first three centuries there was this um, explosion of you know growth of the church of followers of Jesus that spread with no internet, no politicians, no social media, no celebrity pastors, no church buildings, no legal status, no anti-discrimination status that spread kind of from one table to the next um, through the Greco-Roman world, all around the Mediterranean world, where it was mostly illegal and there was a state-sponsored genocide of Christians for almost three centuries. And in spite of that, uh, or, or, or possibly even because of that, so many people were drawn to Jesus and life in the kingdom to the point that Emperor Constantine, and there's different interpretations of what happened with him, he's in the 300s, about middle of the century. He converted to Christianity, whether or not it was uh, legit or illegitimate, whether or not it was a political power play is open to interpretation. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, obviously, his, you know, the official story is that he had an encounter with God and became a Christian. But if you look at his track record, he was friendly to the church, but as long as the church bowed the knee to the empire. Mm. So there was this dramatic shift in the middle of the third century where the, the way of Jesus, as it was called, um, moved from being a persecuted minority to a political majority. And that was a major shift. And now the church had to figure out how to get along with the empire. Empires require things like violence and war and borders and ethnic identities and taxation um, and stratified society in order to run. And all of that stuff's pretty antithetical to the Sermon on the Mount and the way of Jesus. <laughs> so there was this kind of great compromise, you know, where, but it, it's more complex. So when people are just like, yeah, Christians got into power, Christians should never be in power. That's, that's, a, that's a very ignorant read of church history and just the complexity of the human condition. You know, mm -hmm. if you, would you want if, you know, if most of America was following Jesus, which it's not, but would you want only secular pagan people who believe in all sorts of injustice running the country and no Christians up there? Probably not, you know? It's not an option. It's very much a hypothetical scenario for us. <laughs> but so it was, it was a real challenge. Like, all right, now you have a senator who's become a follower of Jesus, but he's a senator for the Roman Empire, and it's an empire. And so how do, how do, you, how do you put those things together? And so it was, you know, call it the great compromise or whatever you want. And there was much good that came out of it and much harm. But many people have said, or are saying, many people much smarter than me are saying that we're living in a very similar time to kind of the following centuries, the decline of the Roman Empire, where you had kind of two simultaneous things. The wider culture of the empire was falling into decline and disarray as tribal groups like the Visigoths began to move east into the empire and Rome began to depopulate and was eventually sacked. And then on the other side, there was widespread kind of compromise and complicity in the church in order for them to kind of marry into the power of Rome. So you have this dual dynamic where kind of in the wider culture, there's decline and disarray and inside the church, there's compromise and complicity. A lot of people would say basically that's very analogous to the cultural moment that we're in right now, both in Western culture, which I have no idea, but a lot of people argue is now in decline. We've, we've reached the top of the bell curve and we're now heading back down. I don't think we're heading into like Book of Eli or Blade Runner. We're more <laughs> likely heading into like Joaquin Phoenix, Her, if you've seen that. No, Or I um, Brave New World by Hux. Oh, you haven't? No. Oh, uh, yeah. That's worth... I'm always interested in, okay, so have you heard Neil Postman in Amusing Ourselves, his whole thing on 1984 versus Brave New World? Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, for sure. I did a, my, her, my undergrad yeah. had a lot of Postman, uh, my communications oh, degree, my first degree had a lot of uh, Postman reading required in it. <laughs> He's brilliant. Yes. I mean, maybe you don't think so. I don't know. I, no, I no, really appreciate sure. his work. So for those of you listening, Neil Postman wrote this famous cultural analysis called Amusing Ourselves to Death, which is about the role of entertainment and TV. Back in the, I think, I want to say late 80s. Does that sound right? 88, something like that? It's the 80s. I don't know the, yeah, I don't know the date. Yeah, something like that. You can tell really by the cover how old it is. <laughs> basically argues that the two areas of culture that would be most harmed by the rise of TV and entertainment are politics and religion, mm. which is really interesting. And, but he opens his book with this like compare and contrast between two of the great 
literary sci-fi novels of the 20th century, 1984 by George Orwell and Brave New World by Adolis Huxley. And he basically says Orwell's is the more famous one, this kind of dystopian future of this kind of totalitarian rule and big brother and you know, Apple makes the commercial for it to release the Macintosh famously at the Super Bowl. But actually it's Huxley whose vision of the future was far more prophetic and prescient. And Huxley envisions this dystopian future where everybody's rich and happy, but it's a, it's a faux happiness because they're all on this drug called Soma and they take this pill constantly. They have no deep conversations. They never attend to grief or pain. They just live on drugs and they're all sleeping around. Family has been broken down. Mother and father is a dirty word. The slogan for the future world is no monogamy, no family, no privacy. And it's a highly stratified society in the book. There are these like nameless, faceless people that literally come up through the floors and like take away dishes or whatever and then disappear down into the underbelly of society. So it's like all these kind of like wealthy people. Yes, living <laughs> this home, like, yeah. you know, rich kind of affluent, you know, sexual mm -hmm. hedonistic life. And then there's all these people that are like below that you never see their face or their name. And uh, th that's, I think, the, the more like the dystopia that we're actually moving into. So I don't personally think that like America is going to fall into chaos and civil war. And it's more and that's where jo Joaquin Phoenix is, you know, in the movie Her, if you've seen that, that's worth a watch. It's a okay. similar kind of digital dystopian. Everybody's happy and living in L.A. and they all have like these amazing devices. But yet there's this like deep hollowed out emptiness and loneliness underneath all of it. Right. Well, and, and that's where we talk about more and more people who are following Jesus, where if cultural Christianity is falling away, it doesn't suit anymore. The values are so juxtaposed. We're looking at um, the dominant values of that kind of a culture, this dystopian thing that you've listed. Yes. Where you say no family, uh, no, no, monogamy, no, no monogamy, no privacy. No privacy. That sounds pretty much it but <laughs> eerily like our world <laughs> but and he wrote uh, that in the 40s it's you know crazy. it's amazing but um you know the dominant values of culture and then the dominant values of jesus people it makes you feel as you're writing in this book this living in digital babylon this digital x i yeah. um, barna right does a lot of research they call it digital babylon as well it's a yes yeah, great phrase, phrase. So, you know, <laughs> what's going on here? I mean, we're talking about <laughs> <laughs> the world is on fire and how do we not lose um, yes. sight of Jesus in it? You know, that's a, maybe a, too broad of a question, but uh, <laughs> what, you know, what's coming at us, of course, is the point of your book to identify what's coming at us and then how do we respond to those things? Um, yeah. Um, yeah, well... Walter Brueggemann has that great line, exile, and I will butcher it a little bit because I don't have it memorized, but, you know, exile is basically the felt experience of living in a culture where the dominant values run counter to one's own. Mm -hmm. And that we are increasingly living in a culture where the dominant values, the highest moral values are actually counter our own as followers of Jesus. Can you name and a couple is a of those? Really what are some of those values? Um, Maybe we've kind of have already, but just to, if there's something we haven't mentioned already, what are some of those uh, values? So a non-emotionally loaded one would be materialism. Mm 
mm-hmm. the assumption that you know rising standard of living and more money equals more happiness is kind of one I think the primary lies of Western culture, and uh, a massive one that is more emotionally loaded would be the kind of post Freud worldview that we're living in that basically would say. Uh, fulfilling your sexual desire and whatever I chose freely chosen sexual identity you have is mandatory to living a happy and fulfilling life. That's a that's a massive value. Sexual self-expression is one of the highest moral goods of our society, mm. and uh, we follow a, a Jewish rabbi who never had sex ever once in his whole life. <laughs> uh, that's 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 a little bit of a jarring kind of juxtaposition. Happiness being the pre defined not as the the virtue of you know contentment or eudaimonia as the Greek called it or joy, as the New Testament writers call it, but happiness as defined as feeling good in the moment, being kind of the, the ultimate meaning to life, if there is meaning, uh, that's, that's very different than the Christian worldview where love and becoming a person of agape is the highest good, and the primary path to becoming a person of agape is suffering, which involves basically not feeling happy in the moment, um, that's the primary way that most of us are formed and forged into people of love. That's a jarring juxtaposition between the dominant values of our culture. And so if our culture values materialism, Jesus would teach us about radical generosity and freedom from the need for things. If our cultural values sexual pleasure and self, sexual self-expression, and then Jesus would teach us about holiness and communion with God and dedicating our whole body to the temple of the Holy Spirit. If our culture would teach us, you know, about radical individualism, the way of Jesus would move us toward interdependent community and even mutual submission to one another in life together. If our culture would teach us, you know, so it's just, it's just pretty jarring and increasingly that gap between the values of culture and the values of Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount. Um, it is getting wider every day. This episode of the podcast is, of course, brought to you by our friends at Compassion. Amazing organization doing amazing work. And if you're coming into this new year feeling a little rough, you know, Omicron's getting you down, or I don't know how you're feeling. Maybe you've already given up on your New Year's resolutions at this point. But whatever you're resolving to do in 2022, I do hope that you're taking some steps and making some plans in how to get out of your own head, out of your own needs and problems, and into um, the ways that you can serve and impact the world around you. I love what this community is doing here at Word Made Digital. It's been amazing to see uh, all of us join together with some of the work that Compassion is doing. Local churches in partnership with Compassion Canada are doing this work of lifting people out of spiritual poverty, economic poverty, physical poverty, social poverty, and it's so exciting to see. So if you haven't yet made some resolutions about what you want to do yet this year, you're looking to make a positive impact and show some kindness in a world that is having a rough go, I want you to go to compassion.ca to get inspired. That's compassion.ca. Yeah, well, you talk about it as a, you're not the only one to describe it this way, but it actually seems because you, I don't know if you are a pacifist, but you strike me as a pacifist and you use war language, battle, war. Yes. Um, there's yes. this raging thing between these two sides in us, in every one of us. 
who are part of this because it's what we swim in every day, this kind of world, this culture, this exile life. So you talk about this battle is between truth and lie or these two kinds of value systems, but that you say truth is losing. Truth is losing. And uh, I think we all resonate with that, this post-truth, this what is the truth we don't know, you know, in a world where we can't trust the science of a vaccine and we're not sure the politician is telling us the truth or the pastor is telling us the truth or whatever, the internet isn't telling us the truth. Um, <laughs> how do we navigate that? <laughs> if we're, if we're in a battle, uh, uh, it's interesting you use that language. You know, what do we have a, do we have a hope? <laughs> Is there any equipment in the, that we've got yeah. here to work with? What do we do? Yeah. Well, no, I point that out in the book. You know, it's funny. I am, I, I shy away from the label pacifist just cause that means different things to different people. Um, and it's a mostly a political word now, but yes, you, you intuit correctly. My understanding of Jesus teachings and the writings of the new Testament is that all violence and killing, including self-defense is incompatible with obedience to Jesus. Mm -hmm. And what most Western Christians don't realize is that was actually the uniform position of the church and the church fathers and mothers up until Constantine, or really not even till after Constantine with Augustine, who kind of developed what we would now call just war theory in the fourth century. So for the first like three or four centuries of the church, that was basically the uniform position of followers of Jesus, mm. that we don't do violence um, we, we, at all, whether we're paid for it or not, whether it's self-defense or we just don't do violence. We do suffering, love, and martyrdom. So that that for most Christians don't think that in the West. Most Christians in the West um, believe that violence is sometimes necessary. So that, that's just an interesting thing for a lot of Christians to have to wrestle with. And I would strongly recommend Preston Sprinkle's book, Fight, which mm. is a well-written, easy to read, not too long, extraordinary tour of both the Bible from Genesis to Revelations teaching on violence and church history. And it is, I mean, if you're not, if you're not, if your opinion is not swayed by the end of that book, I don't have any other recommendations. It's just really, really good. Anyway. <laughs> well, and a guy book, like Sprinkle, I, I love out, Preston Sprinkle. The name sounds like a character out of the movie Elf. Yes. Uh, yes. You know, <laughs> but then the topics 100%. he writes about are quite serious, heavy, and yes. academic. <laughs> but his name is yes. Sprinkle. Yes. He's just written a book on, <laughs> on transgenderism that's also fantastic. Yeah, that's right. So, so anyway, in the book, I just point out how odd it is that, you know, Jesus, who taught nonviolence and then modeled it by giving his life on the cross, the New Testament writers who taught nonviolence, the early church who for centuries taught nonviolence, all gave us all of this rich imagery that's in the New Testament itself and all over the writings of the church fathers and mothers and the desert fathers and mothers of, of, of war, of conflict in the spiritual kind of realms. And this is actually crucial to recapture. Most Western Christians are still basically secular in their worldview. And it's a tragedy because if you don't believe in the enemies that we read about in the New Testament, then you end up making other people your enemy. If you don't believe in the demonic, then you end up demonizing other people or entire groups of people just because Mm -hmm. of their political identity, who they voted for, their ethnic identity or their national identity or their religious identity or whatever. And we have to remember the enemy is not secularism. The enemy isn't progressivism or in other circles, conservatism 
conservatism. The enemy isn't this nation or that nation or this political party or that political party. The enemy isn't post-Christianity. The enemy is the enemy. And ancient Christians in the Desert Fathers, Desert Mothers, fourth century, they developed this paradigm based on the writings of the New Testament that they called the three enemies of the soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And that's basically my book is, spoiler alert, is basically my attempt to take this ancient paradigm of the three enemies of the soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and update it just as far as the, the way that we talk about it, not the actual idea, but and kind of contextualize it for our very secular and very sophisticated world where most people think about the devil and they just chuckle as like it's a red cartoon character, you know, and some kind of a pre-modern, pre-scientific myth. The flesh, we just have no category for because we live in a sensual culture that's more about hedonism mm -hmm. than it is about virtue. It's more about feeling good in the moment than it is about becoming a good person over a long time of self-discipline and restraint. And the world, we just don't even have a category for it. Even Christians, we would just call it the arts, entertainment, or politics, or economics, uh, anything but the world. So these are very biblical categories, very, very Jesus categories that we've lost over time in kind of just the development of Western culture and even Western church culture. And I'm trying to recapture them to, to, to name that these early followers of Jesus, who were basically all pacifists, all said that we are in a war, but that war isn't with other people, it's not with the Roman Empire, it's not with Romans or Visigoths or whoever, it's with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Mm -hmm. And then I go a, a kind of a layer deeper to say that war with the world, the flesh, and the devil is different than a lot of us expect. In Jesus' teaching, in particular in John 8 and Matthew 4, it's primarily a war with lies. So my kind of basic thesis in the book is that the devil's primary strategy is deceitful ideas that play to disordered desires that are then normalized in a sinful society. So deceitful ideas, that's kind of Part one of the book is on the devil and how he lies mm -hmm. and is deceptive that play to disordered desires or what the New Testament calls the flesh that, that are then normalized in uh, this sinful society or what the New Testament calls the world. And so the lies of the enemy are not these like random lies like Elvis is alive and hiding in Mexico. Those are not the <laughs> lies because... That has no emotional bearing. I have no like emotional tug in my heart yeah. to believe that lie. But if the enemy comes and says, you know, you married way too young. Your wife is great, but you guys really aren't a great fit for each other. Mm -hmm. You'd be way happier if you just got a divorce and kind of followed your heart and found somebody that's a better fit for you. Mm -hmm. That's an emotionally loaded lie that plays to some deep broken part of my heart that's bent out of shape and in need of healing. And then when that kind of disordered desire is normalized in the echo chamber of the world, where all around me people are saying, yes, you do you, be true to yourself. Divorce is an act of courage and authenticity rather than what it actually is, the grotesque you know, breaking of vows and often betrayal. When you're in this echo chamber, the world is kind of like, uh, this is a marital example, but sometimes if it's a midweek night, I'll ask my wife like, do you want some ice cream? I'm not actually asking her if she wants ice cream. I want ice cream, but I, I want to delude myself into eating it guilt-free. And the best <laughs> way I know how to do that is to trick my brain into thinking that I'm doing it to be nice to her. Right. So, yeah. you know, 
And so then you say, yes, sure, or whatever, because it's just a giant echo chamber that then enables you to kind of emotionally deal with your shame over sin. And it's an unhealthy coping mechanism. It doesn't actually deal with it. It just suppresses it. So these kind of three enemies work together, the devil, the flesh, and the world, with deceitful ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in our sinful society. That's the, the basic kind of flyby of my book. So... I mean, then perhaps the most obvious question to follow it up is if we're sort of, we're, we're saturated in that, how do we identify it? If we're so, like, we're, it's everywhere, the world, the flesh, the devil, how do we begin to name what these things are that are happening in us that we've normalized, that are so normal to us, we don't even know that they're contrary right. to scripture? Well, um, we've, we've, we're part of the empire now, us and Constantine yes. and America and all of it, you know, I mean, Canadians are just as American yep. about some of these values, you know? And so how do you, how do you have eyes to see when you don't have eyes to see? Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, this is where I think the future is ancient and it's, it's complex, but it's not rocket science. It's following Jesus together in community around the teachings of Jesus and the writing of scripture. You know, Jesus came to bring light to the darkness is the imagery used by the gospel writers. And, you know, light is a word picture and metaphor for illumination and darkness for ignorance. And so mm. as our culture is increasingly dark, not just meaning depressing, sometimes it's dark and it's beautiful and bright and shiny, but it's, it's ignorant. It's ignorant of the truth. It's ignorant of what's actually good and beautiful and true, what reality is and how to flourish before God. In a material view of the world, God is not a part of human flourishing and the world, the flesh and the devil are not a part of injustice or human suffering. And that view of the world, we, it cannot deal with the root problem and the ultimate healing for the wound of evil. And so it cannot fix the problems of the world and it cannot lead to health and flourishing. Not, not should not, not will not, it cannot. It is incapable of it. And so this is where we have such a gift in Christ and in church and in the way of Jesus in our life together. So I, I think it's not to oversimplify something that is, I, I, I grant to it the complexity of it, I wrote a book on the subject, but it really is just coming back to scripture, coming back to the teachings of Jesus. Jesus' whole summary response to his life and his teaching and his message of the kingdom was repent and believe. And some would say that's the summary of the entire journey of discipleship. It's all just repenting and believing. Mm. And you can, you know, you can translate that word repent as rethink and believe is trust. And so to repent and to believe is kind of to rethink all of our mental maps and what we think will lead us to a good and happy life and to put our trust and our confidence in Jesus and his teachings and his view of reality to lead us to the deepest life that in our bones we ache for. So it's just a life of repenting and believing and rethinking and coming to trust and put our confidence in Jesus, his teachings as they come to us through the writings of the New Testament, as we do life together as a community and bolster each other up into these values of the kingdom of God that run so counter to that of Canada or America or Toronto or Portland or wherever it is that we call home. Yeah, I mean, all of what you're saying needs that community context 
um, you know, you just this idea from your book uh, that we're decent at learning but fantastic at imitating, that we need to imitate mm. others, be in a context of community where we can learn how to do that from one another and together. Um, <laughs> but like, oh my goodness, so often that's the place where the opposite has happened. Um, and why people mm. are saying, forget it. Like I, it's the classic, I yep. like Jesus. I'm still intrigued by his life and the story of the, this God man. But man, like the church is a place, whether I'm a leader or a congregant, it's been a wounding place. Yes. And so yes. We, people have fractured into these, you know, internet <laughs> subgroups of angry people. Yes. And there's probably yes. something that, you know... Uh, I'm circling around to say that uh, we should be, if we're, if we're called to repentance and community, the church mm-hmm. should be the best at repenting <laughs> in the world. And yet we're so slow to name our own faults in any meaningful public way. Uh, you know, how do we, <laughs> how do people find, what would be your advice for people who are trying to find a place to do that? A church community that is humble uh, enough to, to, to take us as we are and, and work with us, you know, what do we do? How do we find these places? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, I think we have to constantly be aware of utopianism Mm. and we have to constantly plot our church experience in our larger human experience. So, um, the wider culture is utopian, it's humanistic, it's individualistic and it has little to no long-term relationships. And that's a dangerous place to live in. And we bring all of that worldview into our experience of church. So on one hand, church is the light of the world. It should be a, 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 a beacon of moral flourishing. On the other hand, you know, Eugene Peterson has that great line about how, how the church isn't this like, it, it is a contrast community to the world, but you come expecting it just to be like all saints. And what actually part of the function of the church is to draw out human sin, to draw the like, part of what it's actually designed by God to do is take the sin that's in all of us, our fear, our ego, our greed, our ambition, our shadow side, and actually draw it out in the safe place of God's love and community. And so church should be the place where sin comes out into the open. And then we have to deal with it through repentance and humility and community and faithfulness and all that kind of stuff, which is where we often, we're often pretty good at drawing the sin out and not great at it. But the other thing I would say is, you know, people like the church sucks about all these things, da, da, da. And I would just humbly agree. But then I would say, but do you think it's better in the world? My experience is that it's 10 times worse. And often people have this like, you know, honeymoon stage when they deconstruct or they leave the church and they're just like having brunch with their buddies or their friends on Sunday morning or whatever. But it's a honeymoon stage. That's not a long, you be, you talk to people that have been there for a long time and they're, they're incredibly jaded by the world because it's in, it's i mean it doesn't even have the values of humility and repentance and integrity and longevity and fidelity and being in relationships that aren't about your pleasure but are about the mutual formation of of another and yourself it doesn't even have those values and so if you look at what's happening in corporate culture and workplaces and politics on the internet. I mean, it makes what's happening in the church look like kumbaya, you know? (laughs) So that, that doesn't justify 
crap in the church. We just have to set this in perspective. And the perspective isn't like that six month, you know, 12 month kind of glory period you feel when you're not going to church and you're just hanging out with friends that you have like attracts like for, but in the long-term kind of reality of other communities, other attempts to live and find belonging and meaning and purpose, there, I think they are 10 times worse. So, you know, you have to put this in perspective and then, um, you know, then we still have the problem of why is the church not leading with more humility and repentance and integrity? And, um, you know, one answer to that is, hey, this is the human condition. It's everywhere and it's even worse outside the church often, though not always. But then you have all the exceptions to the rule. You have all these, most of us know some secular person who is genuinely more Christ-like than most Christians that we know. And that's always, and, and to deny that would be unconscionable. I, I know some secular people that are incredibly loving and kind. And, uh, and so you, you, you have to admit that. And not just admit it, you have to even celebrate it at some level and open your heart to that and, and, and have a curious, humble spirit about it. But I think, you know, with the church, it's, it's the Gandhi thing that's become cliche, but be the church, be, be the change that you want to see. Mm. and pray and fast fast and ask God to raise up leaders who model not perfection, that's not an option, but who model Christ-like humility and integrity and mutuality and leadership. And, uh, and one of the first steps toward that is becoming the kind of people of whom a leader like that would be an appropriate response. There are lots of leaders like that whose people won't follow them. And so um, we, we want to be the change that we want to see in the church. I know that's cliche, and I'm sure that will just offend all sorts of people. But my, I think my biggest takeaway here is you have to set the church in the perspective of human sin and fallenness and mm-hmm. the wider perspective of what's how just how grossly... Nar- I mean, the culture we're living in is so uh, humanistic, so Hindu, so like deeply devoted to the delusion that all of us are in our essence good and then just corrupted by our family of origin and our parents and our society that which is a way of staving off shame i think it's a coping mechanism for a culture that doesn't have any view of atonement doesn't have any way to mitigate and deal with its own sin and its own shame and uh and so we're just terrified to actually admit that all around us is a world and deep inside of us is a heart that is often grossly narcissistic and fear-based and bent in on itself and people are wounding people right and left and there's great pain in the world and we need to be saved by something outside of ourselves so again this is the christian gospel um that that i just deeply believe (laughs) the older i get Uh, john mark it's always, uh, it goes by fast with you because <laughs> yes. you've got so much uh, inside of you. You're so well-read and therefore I think well-rounded in how you approach these questions. Live No Lies, it's out now. We want people to go get it. You've got a podcast going on with it. We want people to get there. So yeah. all this stuff's going to be, uh, you know, we'll, we'll link it in the show notes so people can find all things John Mark. Well, Conrad. thanks. Thanks for letting me ramble on oh and gosh, off no. the cuff conversations with me are always dangerous. Who knows what I just said? So <laughs> it's happy to be along. Always a delight to chat to you. Thank you for having me on. Thank you.
John Mark, as always, thank you so much for that conversation. Next week on the podcast, we have Bridget Eileen Rivera. This is going to be an interesting topic, and I think you're going to want to come back because the topic of her latest book is called Heavy Burdens, Seven Ways LGBTQ Christians Experience Harm in the Church. So it's going to be an episode coming in hot. She's got um, some really important insights for us to pay attention to. I don't want you to miss it. Thank you so much to our sponsors, to Compassion Canada and to The Church Co. who are making this web, this whole web experience possible for you. If you haven't checked us out online, I want you to go to uh, wordmadedigital.com or you can always find us on YouTube. You can watch these episodes. If you want to watch the episode with Bridget Eileen Rivera or you want to check out the episode we just have here with John Mark Comer, go to our YouTube channel. I'd love you to subscribe there. We've got a whole back catalog of uh, tutorials and podcasts podcasts for you to check out. And you can always find us day to day at the Digital Church Facebook group. That's a growing community where we're talking about all things digital church, discipleship, evangelism, and how technology is affecting how we do our faith. So hope to see you next week with Bridget Eileen Rivera. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Word Made Digital podcast with Joanna LaFleur. If you like this content, hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Rate it and share this episode with your friends. Head over to wordmadedigital.com for more free tools and helpful content for creatives and communicators. We love helping you communicate the best news in the world. 